Hello and welcome to The Game Is About Glory. My name is Steph and joining me are Gareth and Milo. Hello, chaps. It's been a while. How are you? Hello again. Yeah, nice <laughs> to see you again. Wow, crazy. Well, it's, uh, wonderful to see you both uh, again. Hey, look, happy holiday season, guys, first of all, to you both. Um, I know we're at the beginning of it, so... Um, I'd like to extend my uh, holiday greetings to you both. Season's greetings to you as well. Excellent. Thank you. And and season's greetings to everyone who is listening around the world to usher in the start of those wonderful couple of weeks where everyone sits around, has parties and does fuck all. Uh, No, I'm not talking about a typical fortnight in the current uh, British government calendar. We at The Game Is About Glory would like to give you a pre-Christmas sweetener. Instead of some early gold, frankincense or myrrh, which chaps I learned earlier this week from that bastion of truth and goodness, the mighty Dame Edna Everidge, can actually be used to treat syphilis, believe it or not. Myrrh, I didn't know that. Uh, we will be bringing you Spurs in the Tens, the latest in our look back at modern Spurs decades. We've done Spurs in the 90s and the noughties, so this is part three in a trilogy. And look, I can't promise that uh, part three of this trilogy will treat the sort of ailments that Murr does, but we can promise you that it is going to be a treat. And given that this is the holiday season, uh, we're skipping the week that was because we might have recorded this episode in advance to allow us more time with our feet up, quaffing all sorts of holiday food and booze in the pre-Christmas warm-up. It also means we're faking taking a week off, but we aren't really. And uh, should, should I just shut up, guys? Let's Am I getting? On, Let's waffling? move on. I'm waffling too much. Yeah. Okay. So, should should this be Spurs in the tens or Spurs in the teens? I'm not quite sure. I, th- I think it's the tens, isn't it? Because otherwise, we'd be excluding the first couple of seasons. Okay. Spurs in the tens. It is. I okay. have nothing. I, I, I have nothing to say. But, like, listeners to a recent pod of ours, uh, quite possibly last week's, will have noticed that we were onto the fence depth. There, you get nothing but accuracy with us. That the game is about glory, and that's obviously one of the many reasons you listen to us, isn't it? And you also listen to us for our dynamic analysis of these uh, these decades. And so here we go with Spurs in the tens. Ah. Uh, it says in the notes, let's kick off with an easy one. What was it like being a Spurs fan in the tens? Which is quite possibly the most complicated question I think we could start with. So uh, try and break that down. I, in 30 seconds, three, two, one. <laughs> Gareth. Certainly compared to supporting Spurs in the 90s and 2000s, it was, it was a wonderful time to be a Spurs fan in the 2010s. Um, and just looking at the average league position, average league position was fourth. That season, we were getting up and around 70 points on average most seasons. Um, we were consistently beating Arsenal. We were recording wins against everyone else, which hadn't been a feature of the two decades that, that preceded it as well. So I would say that following Spurs in there, you actually felt relative, um, you actually felt relevant for the first time in probably a generation. Yeah, I'd say this was probably the best time to be a Spurs fan since the early 80s early mid 80s so you know obviously the previous decade we'd turn things around you know from that kind of when martin yell came in we were on the uppers and i think we kind of build on that here we start the decade in the champions league for the first time which is kind of the next question and you know we're lucky enough actually i mean firstly as the decade goes on you know we've got our best kind of modern manager coming into the club halfway through this decade and We've got some great players to talk about here. You know, you think at the beginning of this, when we kick off this decade, we've got Luka Modric and Gareth Bale, who are two of the best players the world has seen in, well, since then. Mm. You know, we're, we're really spoiled. When we go through these players, this list of players we've got for this period, and, and Bale and Modric, 
aren't in our best, aren't in the best team we've got this decade. And we were sport for players this decade, really were. I, I, look, I agree with everything you've both said. Uh, the caveat to it for me is that it also, um, it reintroduced me to levels of, of vertigo and pain that uh, that I that I I, I've, I I thought would be impossible having gone through some of the previous decades we have talked about um, with with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. I thought I'd seen it with 1980 uh, through to 85, 86. I thought that was it, and I was sort of almost con- I won't say content. That's wrong, but I was almost resigned to mediocrity. And then this was the decade where we were anything but mediocre. We were for two years, as we'll get into it, the the, the best club in the Premiership if they'd given the Premier League title over two seasons instead of each season uh, between 2016 and 2018, we would have been champions. That's been statistically proven. Uh, and and look, uh, there was that, that game at the end of the decade which broke my heart. I mean, it broke my heart and I will never be the same. So it, it, it is... Don't, don't go there yet. Let's build to that. No, no, no. It is, but it is all about, as you say, I mean, we was, it was about glory. And but also daring to do all of it. I mean, it all came together in this decade, didn't it? I'm in danger of blurring us into the next question here. But That's fine. Go for it. Blur us into it. If you think, if you go back a decade, so before we'd really started that climb, and we're still kind of recovering from kind of the underinvestment of the sugar era and all of that stuff, and there was a kind of there was a a Champions League cartel, wasn't there? There was a kind of four clubs who had the Champions League places locked on, and it looked to me like we were never going to get in there. Agreed. And and even kind of you know when we qualified for the Europa, uh, sorry, the UEFA Cup under Yol, that felt like a huge achievement from where we'd been. Agreed. And as we go into this decade, you know the Champions League games. I I remember going to kind of the early games at the Lane, going going with my mate, and we were we that first home Champions League game we walked in saying we're going to enjoy this because it might never happen again that's kind of how I felt no you're absolutely right and and the spill on I mean just to touch back to where we left the last uh, review I mean I remember celebrating like an absolute bastard after the Crouch Fest and I remember looking and taking it in and thinking yeah Man City are going to be here again and again and again because you knew the money was there and it was just and it was like this is we've got to enjoy this because this may not happen again so I'm absolutely with you on that feeling and we are yeah it's so true if when we qualified someone had given you the script and talked about those Inter Milan games and everything like that you would have gone yeah of course I'll have that you know it's like oh oh Yeah, I mean, and we are, look, I, I, I have no, by the way, chaps, I have no, as uh, listeners know, we, we have detailed notes and we, we like to sort of go in flow. But, you know, if we break the lines here, this is what Spurs in, in, in the tens was all about. It was about breaking the lines and daring to do. So let's dare to do. And if you want to blur a topic, go for it. Well, you know, that, what are the memories of this period in that first Champions League campaign, uh, you know, un, under under Harry Redknapp? Look, Harry was our manager. You know, Rafa van der Vaart. I mean, we're talking about some, you know, we're talking about some exciting talent. Gareth. Well, you, you mentioned van der Vaart there, and that was going to be my first reference point. But every transfer I knew that. Window, That's why I beat you to it. Sorry. <laughs> every transfer, or at least every final day, or even every final hour of every transfer window since then is benchmarks against that one in 2010 when it turned out... Uh, about a minute before 11 o'clock at night that there was this possibility that we were about to sign this bloke who'd played in the World Cup final for Holland a few months ago. I mean, it's not quite on the Klinsmann scale of, um, of 1994, but it's probably about as close as we've got since then in terms of just that audacity and the unexpectedness of us signing this um, world-renowned 
player who began to he was began to symbolise everything that was right about Spurs DNA. He was that sort of mercurial talent that he wasn't a consistent performer, um, but he would go on to score so many memorable goals for us. And he was um, the rapport that he developed with the fans very, very quickly was it, it was it was really it, it became really clear quite quickly that he was going to develop that sort of relationship. Um, but that for me is the starting point of this decade. Yeah, I mean those Redknapp teams, particularly at this period, um, and I think probably. And I think all these managers we have to talk about how it ended because I mean you know Redknapp, AVB, Poch, they're all pretty you know different but all pretty heartbreaking in how they ended. Um, but during this period, Redknapp was Redknapp. It was really fun. It was fun to go and watch us. You know, we weren't the most sophisticated team in the world. We weren't the most tactically astute. You do get the feeling that it was you know to quote Harry, go out there and run run about a fucking bit. You know, it was there was that approach. Um, but you know, he there was all he had some really, really good players, and um, and and he made some really brave decisions as well, right? I mean, yeah. he you know he he I mean, could anyone else have got away with bringing Emmanuel Adebayor into Spurs? I mean, nobody else I can think of would have got away with it, but he just sort of cheek and charmed his way, you know, and made it work. And earlier we had you know Super Pav Pavlachenko. I mean, he. He just uh, he just seemed to make everyone feel like they belonged at our club to the fans. He, he, he and he was look, he challenged my football hypocrisy. There's no doubt because I did not like him before he arrived. I'll be blunt about that. But he he did carry on what Martin Yol did in terms of making you feel happy to be a Spurs supporter and part of it. Right? I mean, he had a he had a good manner. Gareth, I think you said before that he's your. You're very fond of him, aren't you, as a manager? You enjoyed it. Yeah, I did for, for, for the reasons that you said there. You went to games and you enjoyed them. Um, I've got very, very fond memories of him as our as our manager. I, I think as we'll go on to talk about, when he left, it was the right time for him to go. But certainly in the four years of service that he gave us, they, they were you know, fantastic memories. I, I really do think that he understood the fabric of the club. And he'd never professed to be a Spurs fan when he was when he was growing up, and his allegiances were well, most famously with West Ham. I think he probably grew up as an Arsenal fan, but he grew up in an era where he remembered those Bill Nicholson teams of the sixties, and I think he understood the DNA of the of the club. So for him, you talk about making brave decisions. For me, when we were chasing down that Champions League spot the season before that, he decided I'm going to put Lennon on the right, Bale on the left, and I'm going to put Modric and Huddleston in the middle. I'm a, what mm-hmm. a, what. A, you know, aesthetically pleasing midfield that is and he works on the basis look they're good players they'll keep the ball and they won't give it away and they'll create more chances um, than we'll give up his, his, his press conferences or when he talked to press was great though wasn't it when you look back and look I in fairness, I'm looking back at this with a nostalgic, warm lens, and at the time, I, he frustrated me a little bit. I have to be honest, but yeah, no, I, 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 I always felt his dealings with the press were a bit cringe. Um, it's with Harry; it's always about Harry, isn't it? And yeah, he's yeah, yeah. he's very, very focused on kind of building the building the myth, building the legend, and as you know, he's probably the last or one of the last of that lineage, isn't he? I mean, yes, you know, not just not dissimilar, not dissimilar to Venables in many ways. And, you know, not quite as smooth, but, you know, again, always got his eye on something else. You wouldn't really trust them, would you, particularly? But, um, no, but you know, but, but also if you give them a platform, they're going to use it to try and build their own legend. Um, but, but the payoff for that is that they're, you know, very good at connecting with players. They can, you know, build that relationship, build the rapport. The players who played for them really liked them. And, 
and they could get players to go on the pitch and just be, you know, six inches taller and, you know, half a yard faster because, you know, and free to express themselves because they trusted them and they had that relationship. And as man managers that, you know, there's definitely a skill there. Well, he was most certainly a, a man manager. I, I doubt, and I doubt he was the greatest tactician in the world. Obviously, he Definitely knows not. his game. I mean, he knows his game. There's no two ways about that. But he did come with, you know, Kevin Bond was there <laughs> with him. And there's Joe no Jordan sign of him ever being able to pass any of that off to his son. So I'm not so sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, but he had, but he, I mean, he did have his assistants who did, he did, and Joe yeah. Jordan, you felt, was very heavily involved in, in in some of the more tactical elements. But yeah, you're right. I mean, look, there are friends of mine who will be listening to this podcast. And we'll be listening to my slightly warm reflection on Harry Redknapp and saying, you total bullshitter, you are, you, he infuriated you at times during that. Uh, and he did. Then he'd sort of talk about running about a bit, as you've referenced, Gareth. And, you know, look, uh, talking about another Gareth, I was always uh, extremely frustrated at how much credit he claimed for Gareth Bale. I mean, uh, certainly he should claim some credit, but I'd, you know, it should not be forgotten that he wasn't sold on him for a while. And uh, I'd love to know this, who actually truly suggested that he be, you know, that he not be played as a left back. Um, I, I think it's pretty common knowledge that Daniel Levy pushed hard to keep Bale at the club at the time. So look, Harry, Harry comes with his blemishes, but it has to be said, uh, maybe we should move to, you know, the 2012 season, the season that he left. Uh, or well, left at the end of that season. Um, I'll start by saying it's got to be the most frustrating season of all of them. Mm. I think in terms of we were blowing everyone away up until Christmas, and then Fabio Capello decides to put his uh, small shoes um, to rest, leave the England job, and chaps take it away. Well, I think you've actually missed something out because before that you've got the court case over his tax affairs. Yes, well called. And yep. um, I think what most smarted about him. Pursu- you know, openly pursuing the England job was that we'd stuck through with him through some pretty iffy dealings and you know he was clearly you know that was a distraction and then you know John Terry does a racism Capello gets the gets the sack and then Harry's fluttering eyelashes at the FA at every opportunity and I think if the former hadn't happened the latter probably wouldn't um, have hurt as much and i think the other that's, thing a, that's an excellent uh, that's an excellent point and and you're absolutely right because i remember the f- sequence of events and you're so right yes yeah, it's the consequences and the cause isn't it and i think mm. the other thing is is that the man he lost out to for the job hodgson wasn't flirting with the fa for the job you know he was getting on with his job <laughs> that almost when you look back and you say that the man he lost out to the job uh, the, with uh, roy hodgson that's almost like a fuck you from the FA, if you think about it at the time but, i mean it, but to be fair they were probably right Redknapp in a press conference as the England manager. I mean, well, yeah, you know, he would have been an absolute bloody nightmare. He would have been the Duke of Edinburgh job for sure. I mean, we're, we're getting into personalities versus uh, there for sure. That would have cost him, yeah. But but anyway, uh, you, you continue with with your with your review of that era because you, you're nailing it. No, let Gareth go because I've just <laughs> I think I've said what I've got to say <laughs> <Okay>. about <laughs> about that particular incident. But yeah, yeah. well, I felt that our season fell apart that year. Even before that, we had that game up at Man City in January where yep. we'd been on that fantastic run. Mm. And I'm not sure we would have gone ahead of them or gone top if we won there, but it would have been a real statement because this was Manchester City. I suppose that's another really important context just to drop in here for this mm. decade that the, um, 
the the money came into Man City like properly in 2008. So by the start of the decade is when they are spending huge money on players who wouldn't have looked gone anywhere near them. Yeah. So Aguero um, being being the obvious one <coughs> that season and Balotelli. So we went to Manchester City in late January, went two 0 down, and then had an inspired comeback. Defoe and and Bale scored. And then we had, you know, talking about matter of inches, that, that moment when Bale pulled the ball across the front of the six yard box and Defoe uh, missed yep. it by a, by a long stud away that would have given, put us three two ahead. Then Balotelli, who should have been sent off, sent off for uh, the stand. Kicked Scott Parker in the, in the yep. head. He then wins the penalty that he scores yep. from to give Manchester City the win there. And it felt it like that moment, you know, if you're looking at sliding doors moments of that season, I think had we won at, at City that day, um, the the rest of the season may have been very different, notwithstanding the you know, the other macro conditions that were, that were going on. That's interesting. And look, I know we're not going to be breaking this down season by season for everyone, but this is a very important phase of the of, of the tens. I think that Harry Redknapp's tenure, so I think it does deserve another five minutes. Uh, I, I would say that uh, the sliding doors moment for me was beating Newcastle five nil and Harry drinking the ether of what a smooth and brilliant side we were, and subsequently going to going to Arsenal and actually setting us up in the most disgraceful way. And 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 just a compl- really not preparing us properly, and I, I couldn't help at the time but think, well, this is a guy who's distracted, you know, who's also having his pillow fluffed by everyone. He's having it fluffed by by Spurs. He's having it fluffed by England. And I just thought he's taken his eye off the ball. And I am still to this day furious at that defeat. That defeat really cost us everything that season, and it remains one of the angriest I've ever been at a manager for fucking up a game. And I believe he did. I think one of the things with Redknapp is that obviously he he's always had a load of mates in the media who you know who who will call for certainly you know always called for him and always kind of sung his praises. And he quite often played to that, and you know he clearly liked that kind of adoration. He you know there's a lot of basic there's basically a load of old hammers, aren't there, in the uh, all West Ham fans working in Fleet Street and. Uh, you know, like your initial media. description, <laughs> a load of whatever. It's got a nice um, ambiguity about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he always played up to that. And yeah. um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think he's probably a bit guilty of believing his own myth sometimes. Mm. I, I'm just going to throw in there you, the game you're talking about was the game back end of February when mm-hmm. we went to Highbury. They were really on the ropes before that game, uh, and it really looked like um, we were going to overtake them. This was the mind the gap game wouldn't mm. it yes um so you'll remember the season before the first the 10 11 season we went to Highbury and were two nil down at half time and really it could have been five and I think I was watching that game at the time thinking do you know just bring on another midfielder for a forward let's let's shut it down and let's make sure we're not humiliated here but Harry took off a midfielder and put Defoe on and we won 3-2 that game and yeah. that's still the last time we've won a Premier League game at, you know Arsenal only once in in 30 years so this was the next this was the the next fixture we played there. So you can understand from his perspective, I think, well, let you know, this worked for me last year at Arsenal. This is the way to take them on. It's to really have a go at them. And in fairness, we were 2 nil up in 10 minutes and their fans were booing. Some of them were probably leaving. Um, I don't know that it was his fault that we... Um, we then conceded one crucially just before half time, and then a second one within stoppage time, and then went on to lose five two. I think the cast was probably set by that point. 
And, you know, that was the season as well. I do remember we, we ended up with our destiny back in our own hands. Uh, we, we just needed to win our final two games. Um, we, you know, he blew it at Aston Villa, leaving Jermaine Defoe on the bench. And so the season was done. Harry was done. I think what truly cooked his goose with us was talking uh, so much about wanting a new contract at the time that Daniel Levy was, I believe, sitting shiver for a, for a family bereavement. I remember that. I remember reading the timing and I was thinking, this is a terrible thing. You're in it. You're really being very foolish to do this now. And that was that, wasn't it? Off he went. I think the other thing is, is that, you know, AVB was out there and I think AVB is a lot closer to what, yes, what Levy wanted in a manager. And I think, you know, as we go on, apart from, you know, if we look at AVB and I think Poch, I think Poch is actually what, Levy thought he was getting an AVB. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think um, that kind of younger, tactically astute manager who can bring through younger players and you know play progressive, modern football. I think is what it was always his ideal. I don't think Redknapp ever would have come to the club in any other circumstances than he did. And you know, you basically as we go as the decade goes on, we've got what I think is kind of. Levy's ideal type of manager, what he what he thinks he wants, and then you this it's kind of this book ended with you know uh, yes yeah there's no I mean look there's no two ways about the accuracy of that it's it's a hundred percent because he bought in Redknapp on a short term didn't he uh, mm. to get him out of trouble on the advice of a, of a board member um, uh, who's Kemsley, a friend of Harry's and. What's that? It was Kemsley, it was Kemsley yeah. wasn't it? Paul Kemsley. That's what I thought it was Kemsley. And yeah. um, and, and and look, I, I think it provided a, a real problem for Levy. The Redknapp's success, in a sense, provided Levy with a problem because you're absolutely right. Not the fit, personality-wise. So, yeah, I mean, we, look, we'll go a little more general now because uh, obviously we are, uh, because we're huge supporters and geeks in danger of getting sucked into manager by manager. I very nearly went down the sinkhole of giving you AVB's PowerPoint presentation there to get the job. But let's look in general at the, you know, the impact of selling star players in that early noughties period. I mean, you know, we had Luka Modric uh, left in the summer of 2012. Gareth Bale left in the summer of 2013. Um, you know, was it uh, a case of selling Elvis and buying the Beatles? Uh, you know, we had Bale to Madrid. We had Ericsson came in. Lamella, Chadley, Paulinho, Soldado, Capue, Chicharis, they all signed. You know, what did you think of these deals? Was it more a case of selling Elvis uh, and buying Arcade Fire if Brian Eno had been an incongruous member in the end of it all? Did it kind of reflect more like that? So I, th- I think Spurs have always been labelled in this sort of modern iteration as the selling club, and I think that you know that definitely happened in the nineties. So you think when we sold um, sold Sheringham, when um, so as Klinsman left to an extent, Berbatov, but you know Berbatov, Carrick, there weren't many other good players around them. I think the difference when we started selling Modric, so and then Bale, is that there was a pretty there was a much better supporting cast with them at the time. I just think culturally, perhaps it's a Spurs thing, perhaps it's more an English football thing, there's this huge issue with selling your best players and that's seen as a sign of weakness. Whereas actually, I think what what Levy's done very, very well and always has done is knowing where, or perhaps we're going to find he steers away from this he's actually knowing when to sell players and it's when you get a valuation of a player which is perhaps above what you believe it to be is the best time to sell them um so but i think as a as a, as a nation and certainly as a group of supporters we're not very good at accepting that yeah i mean selling our best player hasn't really happened since bale has it that was the last one and we you know we'll go on to talk about the new stadium but i think 
that was really key, wasn't it? In in trying to you know sort ourselves out financially during this period. You know, we weren't a regular top four club. We didn't have that kind of financial stability, and it was very very difficult for us to hold off these advances. I mean, obviously, we got another season out of Modric, and and he performed during that season. He was excellent during that season. Fantastic. And, and obviously, it's a darn sight better that we sold him to Real Madrid than Chelsea. Um, and to be fair, there weren't many clubs around the world that could could you know hold off an advance, you know, a, a, a bid from Chelsea at that time. Um, you know, you Steph, you were about to talk about AVB. I think you know when we talk about you know Modric being sold and Bale being sold, um, you know, we have to you know talk about AVB and the impact that had on him and you know uh, you know what he was left with. Well, we should we should also remind people that Modric went the the year he came in, and Bale went after yeah. the year that he after calibrated the, year, the whole yeah. side to get within a point of Champions mm. League football. And let's face it, I mean, Bale did that single handedly, didn't he? he pretty did. much that season. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, it had a huge impact just on the on this, that during that period. Um, we lost two of the best players in world football that decade in successive seasons to arguably the biggest club in the world for massive fees. Um, and but yeah, it had. A, a, and I think Gareth's right. I think like, psychologically on us, it did have this kind of it did have an impact. And even now, people will talk about us being a selling club, despite the fact that we haven't really sold anyone we didn't want to sell for a long, long time. And it's very um, interesting. Sorry, did I cut you? No, no, no. It's all right. I, I, I was just going to go on and sing the praises of Eric, Eric Lamella for an hour. So you probably best <laughs> to cut in now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just I, well, I'll cut in and then we can go back to that because we should always spare a minute for Eric. Um, I, I think you know, going back to your point about AVB being sort of much more of a, a Levy type. I think what we're seeing here at this point of the of the tens is Levy really deciding. Well, Redknapp helping Levy decide. I want this structure. I want a director of football. I want a technical coach. I want a team. So Baldini comes in and does all this trading, you know, and he decides that, okay, I can sell Bell because Baldini will take care of things and he will get things, you know, right. And so it's, it's again, it's the beginning of, of, of Daniel reasserting what he tried with Martin Yoll and Frank Arneson and got his heart broken over. And, and arguably the, you know, the closest he's got to getting it right since is now, because all of yeah. this period he tries it and it's just not quite right. The, you know, the matchup between director of football and manager or, mm. you know, the appointment of the managers isn't quite right. And Well, we're definitely going to get into that with Poch because there's a... F- I suppose you could argue that Mitch- Mitchell and, uh, and Poch may be, but... That yeah. was a brilliant partnership, which, I mean, I think was, unfortunately, Daniel wasn't quite ready to... to wasn't quite ready to go with it and he would go one more revolution by the way in switching away from that model he did go one more revolution i think maybe the thing with mitchell is that you know he came to us from southampton if he come you know he's done very well as a director of football elsewhere since if he was coming to the club now maybe he'd carry a bit more weight and i think yeah. what paratici's got and same as conte's got is he's got a load of clout and yes you know you can turn around and say look i've done this at, at juve um you know, yeah Fuck off, Daniel. <laughs> you don't know. You know. You don't have this experience. Yeah, and look. I mean, look. It's again. We're trying not to get too forensic about it. Uh, we should go back very briefly to these players that came in and mm. just just let's quickly recap on them. I mean, you know, I think that there is one standout uh, band member, um, one cult hero, and the rest were a bridge to the other side of this tens yeah. period in Tottenham Hotspur history. Ericsson was clearly a success is a, is a really, really good player. Um, I think I, I'd argue that 
the rest weren't bad. I mean, maybe with the exception of Kirikas, but I mean, he's had a, a you know reasonable career since leaving us. Yeah, Lamella, you know, he had he'd never been injured before signing for us and had been ripping out for Roma. I think he was a you know it, logically it's a really um, I just said your zip go then, Steph. That was quite off putting. <laughs> is that is that a, a normal reaction to be talking about Eric Lamella? I thought we weren't going to mention that on this pod. Um, I think, on paper at least, the, the Lamella signing you know, made a lot of sense. Nasser Chadley, I think, was a decent player and certainly a good squad player. Uh, Paulinho made a lot of sense. It didn't work out. You didn't hear my zipper going when, I was, when you were no. talking about Chadley, did you? No. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, Kapue, again, had a decent decent career. You know, look, you know, when he went, you know, had a good good spell at Watford, didn't he? It was all right. Um, Soldado, okay, you know, I, I think, I think on paper at least, these are sensible signings. It just sometimes doesn't work, and maybe it was just too much change in one go, and it took them a little while to settle in. But, um, yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely the case. I mean, Polino for me was, he's probably one of the biggest sort of, uh, misses slash misfortunes of the noughties. So, I mean, a, a technically brilliant player who I think could have done tremendous work for us. And there was a moment, did he not get suspended after the Liverpool game? Was that, was it a suspension or injury? There was a switch point with him, and he never recovered from it because uh, he was starting to really find some form for us i i was really excited about him yeah for, you know in the yeah before he signed his performances for brazil have been fantastic we all thought we had a version of lampard i think yeah at the time that's how he was that's how he was built I mean, i'd always go back to the you know, theory that about 50 percent of transfers are successful and yeah. very very few managers even the best ones will struggle to get many more than 50 percent of them right so you think from those seven yeah ericsson's definitely a success lamella and chadley definitely were better than what we had at the, the time and you think chadley was that bridge then into sun and Daniele yeah. breaking into the team a couple of years later yeah, yeah. i agree agree with that and look i mean we'll we'll move on avb missed champions league by a point uh and uh you know the the toys went flying from the pram he's definitely i think a somewhat um unique individual it's probably safest to say i think probably the other thing we need to say about avb is that he you know from that kind of famous powerpoint interview i think he promised something that he didn't actually deliver so i think he said one thing and then actually wanted something else he was meant to have really signed into the kind of academy and bringing through young players approach. And then, you know, as you said, Steph, he threw his toys out of the pram. What he wanted was us to spend a load of money. And I think there was that um, disconnect between what he'd said to get the job and then what he actually wanted when he, when he got the job. And then I think it was very, very sad that kind of end period because he really kind of shrunk into himself, didn't he? I think he's never um, really recovered, has he? I think he did, he's done okay in, in league and since, and you know, had some, decent you know done done reasonably well since but you really saw him um shrink into his shell and the criticism got too much for him and oh yeah you um, talk about the final months at the club final couple was, of months the, the we is us one was the yeah. big one wasn't it and we got some yeah. we got some pretty heavy shoeings at six up at man city the liverpool yeah. one was the final straw we we got beat three nil at home by west ham i mean I, I was quite worried for kind of the impact it was having on him during that period because yeah he was you know, cracking it, yeah, and yeah, it, oh, it just, was. No two yeah, it just wasn't it. nice. It just wasn't nice. No, and I mean, he also got caught in the Gareth Bale uh, trap, which is you've got a player who was absolutely about to hit his peak. He was probably just, what, a, a thousand foot off summit, summiting Everest mm. in terms of 
peak performance. He was, and, and it's sort of like having a Messi in your side. You like everything inevitably goes through him and you end up building a side to serve him because he can get you to where you need to go. And it didn't quite happen. So he got caught in that trap a little bit and understandably so. Um, but yeah, no, well, well noted, Milo. It was really actually quite sad to watch his, uh, it, and, and he displayed some clear signs of mental fatigue. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was really hard to watch. Uh, we ended, uh, up with, with Tim Sherwood. Um, Gareth, I'm going to hand this to you just very briefly. Yeah, I mean, what I'm going to say about Tim Sherwood is that he had done some very good work behind the scenes in making sure that lots of our good young players were getting some really good low moves. And I think we can see now just how difficult it is to get that right. So the likes of Ryan Mason, Andros Townsend, and most famously Harry Kane all went out and got good, really good football league um, spells whilst they were Spurs players. And that definitely put them in really good stead to then come back into the first team when he was the manager, not Mason, um, but certainly Kane and Townsend. He was the ones that he started to embed into the first Bentaleb team. Bentaleb as well. Bentaleb is the, the name I'm looking for there. Yeah, thank you. So um, I think we have to ignore all the comical press conferences that he gave and all the tactics, Tim and... Um, stuff that goes on with that. I mean, really, I, I, I guess he took over a team that was in sixth place and we finished the season in, in, in sixth place. Um, but I think, it, yeah, the work that he did outside of that role should be something that should leave him with a good legacy at the club. I think he's a prat. And um, I'm, kind of bla- I'm kind of glad that this period happened because it meant that he got out of the club. And I don't think we would have been able to move on with him around. I think there's periods in this decade where we'll see people who are in Levy's ear and I think he was one of those who was in Levy's ear saying, I could do that job, I could do that job. Mm. And mm. probably, you know, had more, um, maybe had more influence than, than he, he warranted. And I think we're better off without him in the club. I think certainly as a kind of, as a modern football club, I don't think Tim Sherwood really has any place in a in modern football club. I don't think he understands the modern game particularly. You know, we talk about Redknapp and that kind of up and at him kind of attitude I think Sherwood's cut from the same cloth and you know I'm sure he's a he's he's fine as a person but I don't want him in my football club and I don't think yeah I think it was good to get him get him out I don't think Poch happens with Sherwood around you know before we move on to the next stage of uh, of of the tens we should um you know dwell for a moment on the fact that this football club um very nearly took us into crimes against football territory for me um and in 2011 uh, unveiled plans to demolish the olympic stadium and move to stratford uh, and build a new one uh, the idea being that uh, crystal palace would be refurbished to host athletics and we were going to be uh building a new stadium uh, at the, uh, the stratford retail park um chaps how do you uh how do you remember feeling at that time i mean it was clear we needed to do something because as we've all been agreeing it was incongruous that we were going to become a champions league regular without some significant um income but you know this did seem like a pretty heavy price to pay did it not I don't think we'll ever know how much that was a um, was a power play against Haringey Council at the time, who it appeared were dragging their feet a little bit with any potential plans that we had to develop the site, as ultimately happened. Um, so whether that was pure pragmatic opportunism on the club's part, um, just to try and just drop that in there and, and give Haringey something to think about, 
or not. I don't know whether we'll ever know or not, at least until Daniel Levy writes his memoirs maybe in, in 20 years' time. But it certainly felt very real at the time, and it really triggered some very you know, very re- visceral reaction in a lot of people. I mean, you'd have to say, looking back at it in hindsight, you'd say it was probably a good power play to put on the table because ultimately it worked. I think everyone yeah. got what they what they what they wanted and what they should have done. West Ham should always have had that stadium in Stratford, um, and we always should have been building our one on site where we were, which is what happened. I mean, I think putting aside how I felt about it for one moment, I think Levy was certainly true. It was certainly been proved right about how you know what should have happened with that stadium, knocking it down, building a new stadium, a football stadium, and redeveloping Crystal Palace is a far far better outcome than what's actually happened with the place because it's a bloody awful football stadium and it doesn't really work as an athletic stadium anymore um so it would have been better for football and better for athletics if if what he wanted to do was done whether you know ideally just not by us i hated the idea of moving to stratford um it would have been awful and i think it really would have um um made me question about you know my support of the club i suppose it's uh, you know although it's only you know a few miles down the road it it would have felt really really wrong yeah, it was a few miles too many, wasn't it? I mean, I, I'm right with you. I mean, I remember the, the news. I mean, it hit me with actually a wave of revulsion. I mean, I was actually revolted by the idea. It, it, it appalled me. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I will ask this as we approach the, the next manager who will be taking us pretty much through to the end of the episode, bar one um, unfortunate brief interruption. And I want to approach Mauricio Pochettino's appointment from a slightly different angle. We've been talking about Levy and his plans with the stadium, and he's desperately looking to grow this club. He's desperately looking to to get this new stadium built. He's looking for any way to get funding. Like, how can I do this? What councils? He makes the decision to appoint Southampton's manager. Do we think that this is genius on his part? Bravery? Uh, I mean, it's an incredibly brave thing to do when you're looking to appeal to investors and say, I want to build this new stadium for this massive club with this huge history, but we haven't actually done very much, you know, in in the last 20, 25 years. And by the way, the manager I'm bringing in is the manager of Southampton. I mean, he didn't go for a marquee name. He went back to his model of I'm going to try and find someone who can, you know, work with a director of football and bring through the youth. A brave decision by Levy or... Did he really know what he was doing when he, when Mauricio Pochettino was appointed? I don't think in terms of kind of stadium finance, who the manager is makes that much difference. They would look at the kind of broader picture, I think. And, you know, our league our league results or league finishes have been pretty decent and Premier League money alone would be enough to finance it. And I'm pretty sure that's the basis it was done on. I mean, Poch had done very well at Southampton. They've been a, a good side to watch. You've got to bear in mind, actually, that it was um, kind of changes in the boardroom at, at Southampton that led to him leaving there you know he'd been very very happy there had a very close relationship with the board there and Nicola Cortese that's right yeah yeah and then when he was removed he'd been pretty vocal about wanting to leave so I think yeah that opened opened that opportunity I'm not sure he would have come otherwise no I said it's another sliding doors moment as well because you remember that we were very close to appointing Louis van Hull at that point oh yes well well remembered from Ugh. from memory, it was him turning us down because Man United job had become available, and they were clearly interested in you've him. Answer, so you've well. answered the question for me because I'd forgotten that, and you're absolutely right. I'd forgotten that actually he turned us down for Man United. And by the way, can I just share a, a very personal and weird thing? I, I I I I that man has always had and 
God bless him. I don't know him. He may be the nicest man in the world and, you know, much respect for his battles to full health again from his illness. But that being said, he's got a pun- the most punchable faces I've ever seen. And, and I just, I, I, untrustworthy. I, I remember another feeling. I just didn't like him. I, is it Beavis or Butthead he looks like? I can't remember which one it is. He looks like Beavis Butthead. to me. No, Beavis, the blonde one. He looks like the blonde one, I think. No? Well, actually, look, he probably could look like either, but yeah. uh, Beavis to me. Beavis is the That's one it. with the smaller look nose. Look it up and, and, and tweet us. Yeah, Beavis no, is the smaller nose. Like Beavis or Butthead. Yeah, but, but anyway, but I just remember, you're so right, and, I, and, and what an important sliding doors moment that is to, to remind. I bet many people have forgotten that, Gareth, because that was Van Hal nearly became our manager, and I, I was not into it. I didn't know much about Potch. But I wasn't into it. He would have been a disaster for us as well. I think oh, awful. I mean, synergy must be one of the kind of most overused phrases we use on this pod. And but yeah, Poch's appointment really was a kind of synergy, wasn't it? It was just the right person at the right place at the right time. Everything came together, and with that group of young players at the same time, it was just perfect. And you know, we've got we've got the question noted down here about kind of him clearing out. Um, the older players, some of the players that have been around a while. And it was so, so key. Because if you think back to that season, that his first season there, he persevered with um, some of the senior players, didn't he? So Adebayor, uh, BAE, um, you know, Kabul started the season as captain. And we got, you know, results weren't great to start with. And then Yeah, it wasn't a great season. We, we lost at home to West Brom. We lost at home to Stoke. Well, and he's just recently written in the Athletic for a column he's doing about the World Cup. He's recently reignited the memories of that last-minute victory at Aston Villa with Harry Kane's deflected mm. free kick, which he has rearticulated as being, um, to use a phrase that we have been using a lot on this pod, uh, that was his sliding doors moment because, according to him, and he'd said it at the time and he repeated it, that kick doesn't go in. He might have been on his way. I mean, it, I always thought that was a little bit hyperbolic, mm. but no, it appears that it was really the case. So, well, well, yeah, I always remember that that was the week the week after that we lost at home to Stoke. So it wasn't as if that was the turning point, and then everything touched to go, turned to gold after that. We still had a terrible home mm. defeat. The players were booed off the week after at home to Stoke. Wasn't there meant to be a dressing room confrontation between yes. the younger players and there was. that 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 older yeah. player? So I think at that Kane, Stoke game actually, I think it was Kane Mason. Yes. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. Um, Bentaleb was in there as well. Bentaleb, Townsend. Yeah, Townsend yep. confronted them and uh, about their lack of appetite, their lack of desire. Yes, and and that's and then they were they were ostracised. Do you remember the game where was it? Benny and Adebayor were in a box and were fo- sending photos uh, whilst the game was going on, mocking like taking the piss. Yeah, uh, but basic. I mean, Adebayor ended up training with the kids, didn't he? He was completely ostracised. I think mm. was Benny as well. I think Benny did as well, didn't he? Yeah, Kabul so. for sure as well. I mean, there was a core, and he there's a big discussion about captaincy, right? Because Kabul because uh, Kabul was captain, and I think that Poch made the decision to let the dressing room work itself out and see who see who won, so to speak. I remember that being the narrative at the time, and it was very much. I think he felt the, he felt the only way that the youth could come through and truly claim it, like he he couldn't be seen to phase them in, and he wanted it. To sort out, he was sort of social theatre in a way, I suppose. But uh, I yeah. remember wondering if it was going to work out. I do remember that. But I remember thinking it was very necessary because I was unimpressed with those players and at that time. You effectively see this kind of clash between Redknapp's Spurs yes. and Poch's Spurs. Yeah, I know, very well and observed. Yeah. 
because you know a lot of these players are players that either you know, you know Redknapp brought in, or you know in Kabul's case, brought back to the club because he had a spell before and then gone off to Portsmouth and then came back. Um, yeah, and and you know what what you know what an important decision because you think of you know you look at those players and you know you know what's happened since. Although you know you've seen some players you know leave and you know there'll be there'll be what ifs. So you know, Bentaleb was such a yeah such a what if because he was so instrumental early on. And then, yeah, it just didn't quite work out. But There are a couple yeah. of fascinating uh, team issues early doors, I think, with Potts that really told you who he was. So you've, you've picked up on Bentaleb and we've, we've uh, you know, regular listeners will know we've, we've featured uh, Bentaleb yeah. as, a, as a player in the past. And he's a player of some intrigue to all of us, I think, because we all felt that he was a, a future captain. Um, but he crossed the line. He crossed the line with a member of Potch's staff um, and, and, and Potch wasn't going to have it. Um, and it's interesting that the decisions he was making uh, early on in terms of discipline uh, and also in terms of just pure upgrades. I mean, you yeah. know, Chadley for me is very interesting because Chadley is a decent player. And we talked about this off pod, Milo. I know he's a good squad player, yeah. but ultimately Poch determined that he was Europa League and he was not going to be Champions League. And so o- onwards. And these are the little key decisions he was making. He's much tougher than he seemed, wasn't he? Ryan Mason, Ryan Mason as well. I mean, he was clearly yes. a player that Poch loved, yeah. but wasn't going to be able to give him the minutes he needed. Andros Townsend, same. Yes, very true. And, and Andros, again, was another player who he liked, but he crossed the line with a member of the staff. And you think about it, you know, Poch obviously comes to us with, a, with, with a, and we look back on him in the first, you know, emotions I think most of us have are of the warmth and 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 the and the, the family vibe and and all of that. But behind it was a pretty hard guy. I mean, he was not going to take any shit. He had a way, and it was his way. Mm. But he had a very good way of not making that necessarily public. And he also, by the way, remember when he would he really disguised himself for some time by uh, I think his English was always better. Than, than he led on and he bought himself some valuable time early on didn't he by not having to get sucked into press bullshit I, I think at Southampton it was a tactic um to to, to deflect attention not have to answer questions and obviously when he got our job that wasn't wasn't an option because of the pressure that would have brought um but no I think you're absolutely right and so the other other thing about that period is a the emergence of Kane onto the scene but secondly um how he eventually found a way to incorporate Moussa Dembele into the team, yes. who was going to become such an important player for us. But it it wasn't inevitable that was going to happen. I think for, you know, for two years we'd had Dembele as this Modric replacement, and no one ever really knew how to get the best out of him. And certainly Poch struggled with that um, to the extent that Dembele had a bit of a renaissance right at the start of 2015, but then had an absolute stinker against West Ham, which was the week before the League Cup final against Chelsea. And effectively, he played himself out of the team. So he only came on as a sub. But it's only really the next season that the team really starts to get built around him. But I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind with Dembele is that, you know, he was predominantly a wide forward for, you know, up until this period. So, you know, it seems so obvious to play him at the base of midfield because he's so strong and difficult to knock off the ball and great at carrying it. But that isn't really where he'd played. You know, he'd been, you know, a forward of, you know, played across the front line, uh, mainly in, in the Premier League before we got him. Paul Mitchell, who was obviously the sporting director, uh, director of football at Southampton and, uh, you know, arrived with Poch as part of his team. You know, he, he um, I don't know if he was directly the person who brought Sonny in, but Sonny comes in with him. Um, and then there, we've talked about this many times, there were 
two players that he identified that he really wanted, uh, Wijnaldum and Mane, and for whatever reasons, we can debate those and have debated them and will doubtless do so again. They didn't arrive. Paul Mitchell goes, how significant is that, do you think, um, in the in, in the tens for us? How significant was, uh, was, that in, was that summer? I don't know. I mean, I think Poch... Poch just suggested that they weren't quite on the same wavelength by that period. So I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm not quite sure how significant it was. I think Poch certainly wanted to become a manager, didn't he, rather than a coach. And you've, you've, um, so he wanted more control over signings, which I think probably in hindsight was a mistake because, um, I think Poch was a bit, um, indecisive on signing players and was in search of perfection that, that wasn't available and I think he probably needs someone to do that for him but he I'm not sure he recognized it in himself and you know certainly it's quite it was interesting kind of towards the end after the Champions League final Potch started talking to him about himself as being a coach again didn't he whereas he'd been very proud when he got the title as, as of manager so I'm not sure is the answer to that I think Potch was probably on a, a slightly different trajectory at that point and, and and wanted to be you know more of a traditional English manager and maybe didn't want those those influences around. Yeah, well, if Joe, if I was going to have one criticism of, of Poch, it would be that he tended to surround himself with um, people who he trusted very much, but maybe who didn't challenge him. So you think the um, you know Jesus Perez, uh, Vicky Agostino, and I forget the name of the other fella. Mm. But when you read the book Tony that Jimenez. he um, Jimenez, yeah, when you read the book that he and Guillaume Balaguer put together a couple of years later, mm. you certainly get the sense there that they're all reading off the same hymn sheet, which I'm, I'm sure comes with many positives. Mm. Yeah, if I'm going to criticise him, it would be that book. That was a fucking yeah. stupid <laughs> idea. <laughs> no, it was. It was really. I was so conflicted by it because you know I was I was in full acolyte mode at that point. I, I worshipped the ground that he walked on, and then he suddenly dropped that book, and I'm like, oh well, I hope it's going to be a fluffy little look into how he thinks about the game. And all of a sudden, I'm reading about. Eric Dyer's potential move to Man United that he managed to snuff out and things like that. Yeah. I'm like, this this does not need to happen. This cannot be good for the dressing room. Couldn't agree more. A massive own goal by Potter on that one. And I, uh, you know, I, I, no one's ever asked him why he did it, why he wrote that book. I mean, it, and, and if he regrets it, I think it's a question I'd love someone to ask him because it was certainly a, a, a big issue, I think. I think he said he was doing a favour for him, didn't he? Because they were friends from his time in, in Spain. And I think... Yeah, I think it was it was doing a, a mate a favour. Well, but I I certainly hope if that's the case that that was when Maurizio learnt that you know friends who ask favours like that at that time of your life are not friends. They're opportunist scum. But now you know that's no good. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. But I mean, I agree with you. But the, the time to do that is after you've left, basically, because yes. it's certainly. I think he betrayed a dressing room trust then, and it was one hundred percent. Hundred percent. Look, if you're in a band and you you know a rock band, or if you work in rock and roll or whatever, the only time you should do a book if you do one at all is when it's either winding down or it's all over. Because you can't write a decent book or tell a decent story unless you're 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 getting out of there, or you, as you said, you start betraying confidence. It's very similar, isn't it? You've got a dressing yes. room there. You've got, you know, yeah. the studio space is very similar to the training ground yeah. or what have you. You can't yeah. betray the trust there. And, and also you, there's frequent fallings out. It happens. It's a high pressure environment mm-hmm. where, where you're going to piss each other off. And mm-hmm. if those relationships are going to heal, you need to be able to do that in private. Yeah. Just, just one question briefly. So we talked about director of football. Obviously the player we haven't talked about is Delhi. Is Delhi the last David Pleat signing that the clubs had? I think. Pleaty, I think he's gone on record saying he recommended him. 
Well, he would be. Carl Walker and Carl Norton came in under his. Uh, That's a lot uh, earlier, though, isn't it? That's so, a lot right. earlier. So yeah, no, I think you might you may well be right. Yeah, Walker's two thousand and ten, so he's five years before Delhi. I'm trying to th- think which other players we signed, but essentially, you're looking for the profile of player who was playing in the lower division, very young, probably pre you know pre twenty, yeah. who's who's come in. I mean, we've had a few. Just looking at other players we signed at that decade, which clearly nothing to do with David Pleat, but you got. NG, Nkudu, Stambouli, mm. Dyer obviously all came in around that era. Yeah, I mean, be- before we get on to that, if you don't mind, because Milo's opened up the Delhi question, I think that he is such a, a, a such a talismanic figure of 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 the tens, and 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 uh, you know, alongside Harry Kane, um, even more so than Christian Eriksen, is probably symbolic of it. So I think the thing with Delhi is that it's a it's a bit like we just said with Poch in terms of kind of right place, right time, you know. I don't think, I'm not sure that if Delhi had joined the club at any other point in our history, he would have had the impact and been as successful as he was. I think it was just, again, just that synergy. You know, he was, although he, you know, he was playing for uh, NK Dons at a very young age, I think he captured them at 18, hadn't he? And, uh, you know, predominantly playing as a, a central midfielder for them. Poch playing him f- further forwards and it just all clicking. I just don't think it, and and obviously later on, Poch wasn't bringing through young players in the same way that he was early on. I just, if it had happened any other way, I just don't think it ends up like it does. And it was just one of those kind of beautiful moments. Everything at that point just came together, and you've got a group of players that just you know grabbed it and ran with it, and just we just we all went on a journey. You know, manager, players, fans, all of us, and the culmination of that was that Champions League final. And it was just a great trip. And we can't recreate that. There'll, there'll be another trip at some point, but we can't recreate that as much as we'd like to. It can't, you know, we can't hold on to it. We've got to move on. But it was just beautiful. Thanks, lads. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's, there's, I can't, I can't add anything to that. I mean, if I did, I'd be here for half an hour. I, I mean, I get quite emotional where hearing you wrap, wrap up uh, that particular, um, tangent that we went off on especially with regards to Delhi and and the synergy that word again between him and Poch I mean it is very emotional I mean it was such a great ride I mean you talk about the Beatles that was the fucking that was the Beatles right there it was beautiful Ricky talks quite a lot doesn't he about the synergy between the kind of the owners and the manager and the players yeah. and the fans and I think that that's what was happening there it's just everything was in everyone was in the same place in the same you know on the same yeah yeah so, at the same time so that you know, to, to hone in on that point, obviously, you know, the, the Leicester season, so on and so forth, everyone, you know, we, we should have won the league, you know, everyone, whatever about that. I'm not going to dive down that. What I do want to ask you both is, you know, we talk about vital games in the tens. When we look at the game at Stamford Bridge, the Battle of the Bridge, how important was that in setting the table for the next three years that we that we enjoyed under Poch? I mean, for me, it was one of the most important games uh, of, of Poch's tenure because it established something that I'd never, well, I hadn't seen from us in in decades, which was a team that was prepared to fight for each other as well as other players. <laughs> Um, I mean, I I think regardless of what happened at that game, Leicester was still going to win the title that season. I agree. Uh, but I know that's not the question that you're asking. I think that you know, the cast had already been the cast had already right. been set. But I mean, this was this was very much the school bully. 
you know, riling up the you know other kid in class for years, and unfortunately the teacher turning around when the other kid turns around and lamps the bully, wasn't it? That's how it felt. Although we were very much the aggressor in that game, that felt like that was years worth of frustration that had been pent up. And you you as you, you were saying there, it felt like everything was channeled together. You know, those players don't remember when Frank Arneson left us to join Chelsea and all the other nonsense that we've had to put up with um, since Abramovich had taken over. But it all seemed to come out in that moment. Um, and it was it was that universal energy that you know, that, you know, that carried through. But um, I still think it would have been the more clever thing to have done would have been to have seen out that game and actually to have won there, whether it would have ended up as winning the title or not. I think that would have been a bigger statement had we gone there and you know finished off and beaten them two 0 The other game that I think is super important and it's the same season was we still had the chance to finish second to Leicester. To Leicester, uh, and on the final day of the season, um, we went up to play a game. I believe it was at Newcastle, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, most of the players were on the pitch, I guess, but didn't show up, and we lost five one, and, and and we gave up that second place to Arsenal, who pipped us. It's the last time they finished above us, I believe the premiership to this day um how important was that in in finalizing some of the things that potch was going to go on and do for the next two three years i i still maintain that the difference between finishing second and third is probably mm. the least significant in the certainly in the top half of the premier league and i think if that had been any other club other than arsenal that had finished above us that day we probably all would have laughed most of the way back home from Newcastle of that just being the the end of a of a, of a really dramatic and climatic season so yeah wow. that been Liverpool or Man City that had finished above us in second place I don't think anyone would have remembered it beyond then it's really I mean it's, it's, you, you saying that it's just brought back the memories to me it's a really really painful memory but I think only because of the team that leapfrogged us to go into third place that day it uh, look the season that we had the following year psychologically that didn't seem to have that much of an impact on us apart from Potch's waistline because he said he just binged on pizzas and burgers didn't he for about six weeks after that I think um I think you're right I think in terms of the you know, difference between second and third is nothing I think you know other than Arsenal I think you know it was a good quip the coming third in the two horse race is a good line and it's memorable and people bought into it didn't it it kind of fits again you know, it fits a narrative so I have a different view of it I think it t- showed Potch um that as much as there were good players in our squad there were some that were just not going to be good enough and were not going to get us to where he wanted and I think that was if I remember correctly uh, was that not the season that uh, that Chadley ended up moving on and there are a few others I can't you know I think it was hurt him deeply we went through that final season at the lane unbeaten um, and and playing possibly some of our best football ever as a football club um, it's fair to say um any specific uh, thoughts on 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 this on this run under Poch, and, let, and let's also bring that across to then having to go into Wembley for the next season um, and, and play, and and that being our home stadium, as you know, Daniel finally gets the dream project off the ground. Let, let's let's combine both. Yeah, well, of course, we were desperately unlucky in that final season at White Hart Lane that Chelsea with Antonio Conte, of all people, had a European free season because they'd done so mm. badly the year before. They had three midweeks. And as we know now from Antonio Conte, if you had given him one <laughs> game a week with a pretty good squad anyway, he's going to do well with that one. So to finish on 86 points and you know still be seven points off the off the, off the title um, was, was almost heartbreaking. But, it's, but such a good season. I mean, I'll always remember it just for beating Arsenal um, which secured mm. the first time we'd finished above them, and it felt like a real passing of the baton moment from you know from them back to us finally that we just so comprehensively outplayed them to beat them two 0 
it's probably my favourite season, I think, actually. It was just, again, just vibes. It was just really, really good vibes. And just, we were good. We were good. You know, you go, to, you went to games confident that we'd win and we'd play good football. And, you know, I think kind of all the stuff we've already touched on, you know, everyone was pulling in the same direction. Everyone bought into it. It, you know that connection between the fans and the team i'm not sure has ever been the same since no i i i think that the fact that we were still at the lane and just the lane was such a fortress and it just did feel that we were all in this together on this of this brilliant like holistic journey and then potter was throwing his auras and lemons out there and it was beautiful and i was petting spaniels and drinking whiskey and you know it was and and we're beating chelsea and coming back against west ham my god that west ham comeback was absolutely fucking brilliant by the way i was sat right by the west ham fans i enjoyed that day so much (laughs) but but also everyone knew that there was a bulldozer going through their dreams yeah their their memories very soon you know they knew that the stadium yeah. was going to get leveled and there was everything that went with that and you think that last game of that season where Poch is walking out on the pitch and he's crying yeah I I, I, yeah, I, I will never that 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 is one of the most significant uh, uh, events of, of my life was being was being at that game uh, final game against Man United it was just yeah it was huge and and, we're, and yeah it was a huge season and then you know he's got a deal with going to a new stadium off the back of that and not just a new stadium the, the national stadium different sight lines different pitch different everything right that's a lot to deal with I mean I remember we were really really good that season I, I think people often overlook how good we were that year we got 77 points that season we never really in the title race because man that was the first sort of pep title winning season at Man City they were just streets ahead of us but that was the Champions League campaign when we beat Real Madrid at Wembley um, 3-1 which has to mm. go down as one of the best Spurs performances of a generation let alone of the decade uh, to take them apart 3-1 that night um, we also got past Dortmund and then really we, we were outdone by a very very canny Juventus side in the in the in the round of sixteen, but I I think if you're um you sort of aggregating how good we were in the league and in Europe that year, that was maybe our best season of the decade because the the eighty six point season at White Hart Lane we stunk the place out in the Champions League, you know, albeit that we played those games at Wembley. That was the Leverkusen Monaco mm. season. So I've got great affection for that seventeen eighteen season. I think we think we were ever so good that year. I mean, I remember in, just being incredulous uh, and joyous at the same time as we went. Went three nil up against Liverpool in like twenty minutes. Yeah. Are you just thinking how much better is can this get? I mean, it was incredible. We took him apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubt that that you know. And then we we get into you know stickier times in a way, right? I mean, this is when it starts to get a little odd. Yeah, yeah. So my criticism of it is mainly around the stadium and just everything about. Yeah, I just don't like Wembley. But I think you know what we're saying about is right about the Poch era before about that connection. It 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 starts to it's not quite there because it doesn't feel the same in Wembley as it do, did at White Hart Lane or you know our new ground the new new White Hart Lane and there was, it was just a bit more of a, a distance a bit more of a gap and yeah just not quite there. Do we think that the fact that you know Daniel was so obviously wrapped up in the stadium project. And there was so much energy going into that. Forget the finance, uh, but so much energy going into it that maybe the closeness that he and 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 Potch had, had shared was a little less because it just wasn't the time in the day, and that just there was a little, just too many things going on at once, and and Potch left increasingly managing several situations um, that that you know were, were very very tough. 
I mean, did, do you think that's a significant um, issue there? What I would say is that this is the period when we definitely needed a director of football. Right. Because that's what we're, yeah. Levy was entirely focused on the stadium, quite rightly. Yes. And, I'd, you know, you look at what the result is, then, you know, it's fantastic. You know, it, it yeah. was attention well spared, you know, well spent and uh, it had to be the, his priority, but we needed someone who could look after the, the football side of things, which he clearly wasn't being able to focus on. And, yeah. you know, obviously finances were tough during that period because stadiums ain't cheap. Um, uh, but, you know, that, you know, we all hark back to that summer where we didn't sign anyone. And I think if if we'd had someone in who could have focused on transfer activity, that wouldn't have happened. I, I think also there was an issue with not moving players on. I think the squad got Massive. a little bit stale. Massive. Uh, so I think I think it's lack of player, you know, that players leaving as much as you know not new player, you know, new players not coming in. Yeah, we were we were then running off fumes for much of the mm. next season, and I don't know you we'll talk about the Champions League run, but it really did feel that this was the last last throw of that team, which I think you know at some point mentally and physically they they, they probably tapped out. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a very, very good point uh, with regards to moving players out as well. I mean, this is when I think we really started to see uh, the the breakdowns of communication as we've ascertained and agreed with no real fault. When you look at it holistically, everyone is fully committed to doing what they're doing. You know, Levy, by all accounts, was so involved in, in everything to do with the stadium that, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people who were you know, working quite heavily in that project. And they said, you know, he was 24 hours a day and he drove us to the, to the, you know, our fingers to the bone, but you respected it because he was in there with you. He was doing it with you. He was yeah. obsessed and the obsession was contagious. And, and, and Potch is trying to say to him at the same time, look, I, I, I need to move things on. I've got a player who's not going to sign a contract in 18 months. He's massive. Maybe we should move him on. Maybe we should reinvest. And it wasn't happening. And so there's a breakdown there. And there are quite a few players, you know, we, we knew he wanted shot of a, De Vero. We know he wanted he wanted shot of yeah. Danny Rose. We know he wanted shot of Ericsson. He wanted out, didn't he? He had made the conclusion. He come to the conclusion, hadn't he, that because he couldn't talk Christian Ericsson into signing a new contract, that it was you know rather than postpone the heartbreak, it was best to get it done then, so as hopefully things could be in place. Uh, you know when the stadium finally happened, yeah. and of course then to cap it all off, guys, you know there was that ludicrously tight time projection with regards to the, uh, you know, the go moving into the stadium, and it got shoved by half a year. Yeah. Well, so Poch suddenly ends up, like, at, well, more than that, right? You're right. Yeah, so, it was April, April it opened, so... Yeah, nearly I mean, another pretty, full season. Yeah, yeah, two months short of that, yeah. And Gareth, I, I know that you were uh, hinted that that was the season that we, we were going to talk about, and let, let's talk about it, because that was the same season, was it not? It was 2018, 2019. We've, we've, we've not signed anyone. There's a little bit of an impasse communication-wise. Everyone's trying to get the wiring right at the new stadium. The players are yeah. absolutely burnt out, yet somehow, somehow, we end up in the biggest game, yeah. uh, 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 arguably, of the club's career. Yeah, well, you, as you know, I like referencing things back to the 90s, but for me, it was so similar to the FA Cup winning year in 1991, where we actually started the league season so well. And by November, we were, we looked like, you know, mathematically, we had a good chance of challenging for the league, but the league form just fell off a cliff. Um, but we seem to be able to turn it on for those cup games. So in the same way that we did in 1991, where we ended up beating Arsenal in the semi-final and missed a pretty awful league run, that's exactly what happened in, in 2019. So we were putting all of our energy, um, whether it was 
whether that was subliminal or deliberate or not, I don't know. But you look at those performances in to beat Dortmund 3-0, then to go out there and win 1-0. The incredible effort that went into that Manchester City mm. home leg. I mean, I said the, the second leg was perhaps just a combination of, we talk about flip of the coin moments. There were several of them up at, up at um, the Etihad. But actually the hard work was done at home because we won 1-0, didn't concede an away goal. And that provided us a platform to actually to go up there and, and and then Amsterdam. Getting that point at Barcelona. Yeah. I mean, squeezing that, that point out. Another another Lucas Moura effort, it should be a, a point. Yeah. Out. And you think we came back from 1-0 down against PSV to win 2-1 in the in the game that um, preceded that one. So there were all these um, seat-of-your-pants moments in that Champions League game that if you're, a script, if you're putting it together in a script, you'd never get it passed off it would seem so um so fictitious and far-fetched that just couldn't happen and of course from a personal level um knowing that the champions league final day was going to fall on my wedding day as well wow another interesting element of that season was that we we bought in uh lorente we bought in a veteran winner uh, and one of my rare criticisms of Poch in his era was that I don't think he utilised the, uh, the the potential of, of an experienced player in the dressing room, getting one in. Um, I remember Danny Alves being on the block uh, a season or two before, and I remember hoping he would get him in uh, because I thought his experience might you know, be good for the squad. But he did this time with Lorente, and, and Lorente turned out to be an incredibly important player in that Champions League run, didn't he? I mean, he was just vital to everything that we did in those final games to get to the final and you know people talk about you know it, it really was a crescendo wasn't it building but it was an it was sort of an, a crescendo of chaos you know we go into the new stadium in april half of our team are knackered we've got key injuries we're, we're, we're sort of like you know nobody we barely fighting to stay in the top four i still can't believe we finished top four that season i mean it, it really was the most extraordinary season, wasn't it? I mean, and and it's it's we look at it with sadness now, but you could also say it was a, a tremendous success in its own way to even get to where we got. Am I being too romantic there or not? I think you're right. I think what you have to recognise is that it came at a huge emotional cost. I think it wrung every last drop out of Pochettino and quite a few of those players as well. And and what we had the following season was just the most almighty hangover. I'm I'm gesturing for you to speak because I'm trying to stop myself from following up because I'm quite passionate about uh, everything to do with this era and let alone what Milo's just said, which I think is absolutely on point. I mean, and 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 I was so emotionally wrapped up in it as well that I, as a, a supporter, failed to see what should have happened after that Champions League final. You know, I failed to see it. I couldn't recognise it. And I think if we're honest, you know, the reason why, you know, this we're, we're this podcast is very guilty of this is that we quite often talk about Pochettino as much as we do as the current manager, is because that involve that emotional involvement, that emotional investment. You know, we talk, you know, we talked already about that kind of synergy during that period, and everyone was pulling in the same direction, and it took it out of all of us. And we've we've still got that. You know, we've still got that feeling that's left over and I think you know I think the players still have that I think Pochettino still has that he still talks very fondly about that you know we're talking the other, you know, amongst ourselves we're talking the other week about him hanging out with Ozzy and uh, and Ricky and, and and others and it's clear that that it's still there um, but I think that's why I think that's why we still talk about it he, he turned around and said in this athletic column recently he was talking about 
Kane and he said, you know, by the way, you know, he basically said, by the way, when I was at PSG, I didn't even make a move to sign Harry Kane because I love Tottenham too much and I wouldn't do it to them. And I just looked and and again, I just felt, I mean, I didn't bother reading the rest of it. There might have been more context to it that I'd seen enough, you know, that the love was still real. It was, it, it, it was, I've trained myself not to be keyed off by that stuff as much as I used to be, but it still twinged my heartstrings. I have to tell you. The truth of the matter is the reason he didn't decide to try, try to sign Harry Kane at PSV is because he had absolutely nothing to do with transfers there and they wouldn't, you know, it was just <laughs> Leonardo, Leonardo wasn't answering his calls, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, we, we do, I mean, it's, look, I think looking at that and, you know, there's so many reasons I think that we ended up losing that game, uh, the Champions League final, quite beyond the refereeing decision. Um, you know, there were mistakes made even in the preparation, I'm sure. But yeah, I, I, I'll ask one, one final question about Poch. Um, let's take off the table the fact that perhaps in hindsight we believe that he should have you know him and the club should have parted ways after that final you know he he takes on the next season he he takes on as you quite rightly said Milo the, the biggest hangover that it would be possible to have as a Tottenham Hotspur manager do we believe that he should have been given more time had he got enough in the bank to earn that time did he deserve more time um I think the one of the other themes of this decade is because of the relative success that we gained, the, um, the supporters had very, very different expectations then. And I, th- I think that if you had ever said, look, we need to ride out the storm here. This is the bloke that we want to lead the team going on into the future. We might just have to put up with finishing ninth this season that probably not many people would have taken that at that point because Tottenham Hotspur by 2019 was very different to Tottenham Hotspur in 2009. I think he was spent. I think he needed to move on. I think he needed to break from football. He needed to break from us. So yeah, maybe, maybe he could have ridden out. I mean, what we've got to bear in mind actually is that a month or so after he was sacked, COVID happened. And if he'd had another four months, he would have had two months with the, you know, off and, you know, time to work with the players before the season started. So, you know, we talk about, you know, talk again about kind of closing doors moments. Maybe COVID would have given Poch the break he needed and the chance to work with the players and, and refocus us. And who knows? I've never thought about that until you just brought it up. And it is such a good point because he would have then had a season in empty stadiums where, you know, that team's doubtless got a better break um, from things such as social media bullshit and whatever else because there just weren't fans in the stadium. You're so right. I hadn't even thought of that. And it actually, unfortunately for... Well, unfortunate for anyone... That's the next decade, so we can't start talking about that. No, 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 I'm not going there. No, no, I promise I won't go there. Um, we'll, I mean, come, we'll come back and I'll, do that in eight years' no, time. No, no, I won't sully that. But what I am, no, no, am going to say is it sort of reverses my conclusion as to whether, you know, you should say... Because I'd sort of come round to the belief like, okay, probably had to happen albeit i will always believe that he had the currency in the bank and deserved the support from the club and uh, and the supporters i mean i think he earned it and i think he should have got it unequivocally i do but i have bent to seeing that there is a logical side to it albeit the problem is milo you talked about people whispering in ears the person who whispered in his ear at that time which i promised you i wouldn't get into at the end of this pod and i i, I will maintain that promise because i won't mention the name but it, it, could it have been anybody else i mean anybody else would have been better i do wonder actually also with Poch. i mean gareth mentioned early on about his kind of loyalty to his backroom staff yeah he if yeah. you look at ferguson ferguson was very smart at bringing in new assistant managers and, and shaking things up and changing things 
And I wonder if Potch had been able to do that. Is that essential in order to be a long-serving manager, in order to change things up? And, you know, even with Conte now, we see that, you know, he's not set, you know, we've had different people coming in and different voices and maybe maybe that was required and Potch just doesn't work that way and maybe that will stop him being you know, a manager who can do decades at a club or... It, 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 it's it's a it's a point to ponder and, and, and look, I mean, f- frankly, it's something that will probably end up being a, a topic we discuss on another pod because I think it's it's worthy of a bigger discussion than we're going to be able to get into here. Um, and I think it certainly is, is, is a question that you do have to raise in this situation, along with several other things with Poch. I mean, over what distance from the Poch era has given me is the ability to maybe distance myself from my uh, obsession uh, with him. And it wasn't and it will always be slightly obsessive because of everything that you so succinctly said about 10 minutes ago, Milo, which I, I can't top. I can't top that. Um, you know, I think of the tens. We, we were talking about preparing this episode. We looked at it. We talked about Harry Redknapp. We talked about everybody. They, they were all just, you know, they're stepping stones f- f- for me to getting to this, to this man and what he did, what he did for us. And uh, we get to a question that you uh, put in the notes quite late, uh, which I, I think is so important. Um, does the lack of trophies during the decade take the shine off of it? Um, I think it does if you're active on social media and you listen to all the nonsense that comes across from um, from fans of other clubs. Um, I mean, the problem with winning a trophy is you, you, it's who else is out there. So of 30 trophies, domestic trophies that were available during the decade, 22 of them were won between Manchester City, Chelsea and Manchester United. Who have a couple of bob. Who have a couple of bobs. So there's very, very little opportunity. And in fact, you know, three Arsenal won three FA Cups and Liverpool, um, and, and, and Liverpool won some trophies in there as well. So there's not actually much up for grabs. I mean, of course, there were some missed opportunities, but you think the finals that we got into, um, 2015 League Cup final against Chelsea, Mourinho's Chelsea that won the league, the 2019 Champions League final against the Liverpool team that would go on to, to smash the league the following season. Even when we got to semi-finals, I mean, Portsmouth was the decade before, which was the one that we all get angry about. But 2012, we lost to Chelsea, won the Champions League final. We lost to Chelsea again in in, in 2017. So it does seem to be, it's not like Arsenal, we've managed to get through to finals and play Wigan, Reading, Hull and Aston Villas. Thank you, for, thank you for articulating that clearly because it's an important point. For me, the journey is more important than the destination and the journey was really good. I think you've also got to recognise that during the last 30 years, since, since the uh, Champions League was established and multiple clubs were qualifying for it from each league, that finishing in the top four is worth more than the domestic cups and that completely skews things. And what Poch was very, very good at is qualifying for the Champions League. And you know, realistically, when he sat down with, with Levy at the beginning of the season, they talked about their priorities. The priority was finishing in the top four. It wasn't winning the League Cup. And he delivered on that. And, you know, as fans, we might not like that because we like a day out at Wembley. We'll, we like to see us lifting silverware. Of course we do. But that those weren't the club's priorities. And he delivered. Yeah, I mean, in terms of journeys and destinations, uh, Milo and I are sitting across from each other and waiting for the tea lady to bring the to bring the the tea and biscuits as we are uh, are on this uh, incredible odyssey and don't really care where the train is going. It doesn't matter because we're feeling it. Uh, I, I I felt it. I, I I you know the only the only trophy that I regret not winning 
during the, you know, this time, the the decade, and specifically maybe the Poch era, was the Champions League uh, itself because I felt that his time and tenure deserved it, and I felt that you know we were unequivocally robbed of the chance to uh, to play the game properly by a, a terrible decision. So I, that that I regret, but holistic, you know, philosophically speaking, I couldn't give a shit. He made me proud to be a, a, a Tottenham Hotspur supporter again. I walked everywhere with pride knowing that this man was leading our club and, and, and had given us our family back. Yeah, would a League Cup, winning the League Cup felt better than Amsterdam? I don't think it would. No. No, I don't think so. And I, I think historically we won the League Cup in 2008. Our two best players in that team were Robbie Keane and Berbatov and they both buggered off within three months. In yeah. 1999 when we won the League Cup, um, Sol Campbell Stuck around for another two years. He was our best player. Even 91, Gascoigne and Lineker didn't play for another 12 months. Only played for us another 12 months after that final. Um, so winning a trophy does nothing for your long-term sustainability and long-term trajectory. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, yeah. Right, look, let's let's just wrap this up. We could spend another hour, I feel, talking about the the, the philosophy behind why, you know, Pochera Spurs was such a wonderful time. Um, but let's try and hone it down. It will be the final question of this pod. It's going to be the toughest one, really, I think, chaps, uh, given how many amazing uh, games we did see from 2010 onwards. I'd like to know your best moment on the pitch of the 10s and, uh, you know, your worst moment of the 10s. Why, 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 yeah, do you Take it in which order, whichever order you want. Um, Milo, why don't you kick off? So the best moment was Amsterdam, Zyax. And the worst moment was the hangover. That slow death of Pochettino's time as our manager was just painful. For me, the best moment was um, Harry Kane's looping header in the North London derby to beat them 2-1 in February 2015. And the reason why, apart from the fact it's a, it's a winning goal against Arsenal, it just felt that, that was the start of a new era. So Kane was very much the spearhead of that Pochettino team. And to have, to have, to have beaten Arsenal in that manner um, was, um, it was eu- euphoric. I can still, I can still remember it. It still gives me goosebumps thinking about that split second silence of the ball hitting the net and the crowd erupting to it. It's not mm. the best goal he's ever scored against Arsenal, but for me, what it symbolised about where the club was going to was um, which was really important. Um, it's hard to overlook what Milo said about the worst moment because it felt like if that was the start of the era, then you know that Champions League final was very much the end of it. Uh, before I go in, Milo, I feel that you should have one more crack and maybe one more um, one more greatest moment because uh, I, I I can't keep myself to one. And Gareth, I know that you've just said this, yeah. one more. Go on. The, the other one. I think the mark of a of a great moment is when you walk into work the next day, two foot taller, and um, taxi for Macon was just what a night. And I think we all kind of basked in that for a fair while afterwards, didn't we? That was big. That was big. I mean, look, I, I, I think so so tough, really. I mean, there's Real Madrid uh, spanking them and uh, great great games. I'm going to go with uh, Chelsea at home. The 2-0 win uh, is one. Uh, Delhi's two great goals showing that we really were, you know, we were continuing and, 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 and we were going to be real and we were real. I guess I, I don't really know how to articulate it. Um, uh, Amsterdam 
I still, to this day, if I'm feeling a little down, I still watch the final two or three minutes. As a matter of fact, when we conclude recording, I know that the next thing I'm going to be doing is watching that final two minutes again. And it's not just the goal. It's the 10 minutes of celebration afterwards. It's it's all of it, you know. Um, the worst moment, uh, you know, I, I've, I've said this many times, uh, you know, about my, my time at, at that final. Um it was the best of times, the worst of times, right? Depending on whether it was before kickoff or at the end of the game. But I'm going to pick the second 45 minutes against Bayern Munich in the Champions League um, as 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 probably the worst and saddest moment for me because we'd played so we well in that first half. And I remember thinking, you see, you fucking see, he's still got it. He's going to get this team working. We saw Ndombele really, really playing a great game. And you're just like, it's going to happen again. And I, and, and then walking out, uh, Johnny and I were looking at each other speechless. And, and it was the first time we uttered the words, is it time? And it was heartbreaking, a heartbreaking 45 minutes. So I'm going to say that was maybe, I mean, the Champions League stands, obviously, but that would be my, my worst moment. But let's not stand on a, on a worst moment. I mean, let's, let's celebrate the fact that, you know, the, the, the tens were, they were, it was a pretty, it's been a pretty amazing decade overall, hasn't it? I mean, it was an amazing decade for us. It's the journey, not the destination, Stefan. It was one hell of a journey. That's yeah. right. Well, I think what, what, what I really enjoy about, and this is the, I've written this in my notes beforehand, but for me, the phrase that sums up Spurs in that decade is the challenger club. So we actually went from being a club that made that next step, that step that was impossible. You said right at the start, Milo, that it was a bit of almost a cartel for those Champions League spots going into the decade, Arsenal, United, Chelsea and Liverpool. And we drug, dragged ourselves into that position where we could challenge for that as well, despite the fact that Man City had been bankrolled as well. We ended the decade. Um, you think just going on that journey from picking a manager from sort of mid-table Southampton to going to a point where you were appointing effectively the most famous manager in the world at the time, um, going from a 36,000 stadium to a 62,000 one, even going from Under Armour to, to Nike, I think is symbolic of that journey that the club went on. Mm. Yeah, I, I I just have to throw this in as well. I mean, we're a pod that loves to make a musical analogy. I mean, when I think of the energy and joy that I felt with this whole period, and especially the Poch period, I mean, the, the, the man will always be a, somewhat of a deity to me, actually. But I think of, I remember, I remember Born Slippy coming out. And I remember it catching my ear and I remember it catching my, my body and vibe. And I remember it was 96, right? And, and I just remember that song, um, especially where it was placed in the film several times. Um, it was just such a, such a, a, just a joyful pumping, like I, just the energy of that is probably the musical way I would articulate the, the joy and happiness and energy that, you know, this sport. I, I have to stop. That's it. I, I, I think a tear might pop into my eye if I carry on. Uh, look, that was tremendous. Uh, I, I love these. I love these decades. I love these decades when we get into them, and I like getting into the nooks and crannies as we do. And and thanks very much, lads. That was, Cheers, that was really – that was great. That was great. Um, we'll add links to Spurs in the 90s and noughties episode in the show notes. Go back and listen to them because they are good. Um, they really are they're fun and dear listener it's going to get even better with the game is about glory this holiday season as we'll be back next week with a surprise christmas special and trust me it is a corker a cracker whatever adjective you want to use it's brilliant it might also be one that your non-spurs family uh, will enjoy so bring them aboard play our pod for them 
you know, gather them all around after the King's speech, which no, that sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? Especially for you, Milo, because I know that you'd never watch it anyway. <laughs> Am I right in saying that? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely good. So anyway, tune in for the fun. Uh, it's it's going to be a good one. Um, indeed, if you like our pod, uh, you know, just look, we say this every week, tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, just help us get our name even more out there. Leave five-star reviews everywhere and tell everyone how brilliant we are. That's that's our you know holiday wish. So deliver it. And uh, as always, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next year. Next week. I was trying to be clever, but I failed miserably, didn't yeah, I? Have, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's just leave it there, shall we? Another. The next one's out on Christmas Eve. <laughs> another miserable failure of my inability to understand calendars and times. There we go. <laughs> Revealed for all. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>